0: Welcome back friends fellow philosophers and authors to this wild isle writing cast I have with me the venerable space captain Michael how are you doing today Michael I'm all right you uh, I'm doing quite well actually yeah I've had a uh, a decent day um uh, been getting through tons of editing this last month and I'm excited to get back into working on some of my own fiction um writing probably not too many good characters, by good I mean like writing good, like writing the good and the just, the virtuous, whatever that happens to mean, because that, my friends, is what we're going to be talking about today on the podcast, writing good, what is good, what is virtue, what is writing morally virtuous characters or stories for that matter. But before we get into it, uh, Michael, do you have anywhere that you want to send people to check out your stuff?
1: Uh, you can check me out on Minds, Minds.com slash A-E-T-E-R-N-I-S, uh, daily writing questions, writing excerpts, short stories. And uh, I'm hoping to have something that people can buy coming up in the next few months. So uh, look there for announcements and uh, where to find it.
0: You do check out Michael's stuff. It is quite excellent. Um, he is a rather famous figure on that little tiny corner of the internet that I'm very happy to, to be able to participate in those daily questions and to be acquainted and if you want to check out my stuff you can head over to dot lit.com i've got tons of things over there um short stories excerpts essays throwing audio to all that i have an audiobook for my novel that's out you can get in print as well Want smoke broken a weird fantasy fiction novel uh, i've been messing with the pitch over and over again just see it for yourself. There's an audiobook there. You can listen to my favorite supervillain um Dagoth or er, read it. So there's no excuse. And while you're over there, if you happen to be an author, which you are likely if you're listening to this writing cast, you can hire me as a line editor. That's right. The Wild Isle Style Guide is my service. Again, over at my website, WildIleLit.com. Um I can help you develop your own unique voice um, and make your work really stand out, sharpen your prose so that you are doing more than just content, you're also composing. All right, Uh, I don't think I have anything else to pitch. Other podcasts are on there, blogs, all kind of stuff. Now, without further ado, let's get into the topic for today. And I actually think this is going to be a really, really interesting topic because we're kind of tackling one of the deepest questions in all of philosophy it's like at the uh, bottom of all moral philosophy because we to understand writing good or writing good characters writing themes that promote something like goodness or virtue we kind of have to start with what is good um so michael i think i'll throw this off to you do you have a definition of good or goodness that you you fall back on
1: uh, obviously, as a as a Christian, my sense of good comes from the from God, as expressed in uh, the biblical record and uh, among other sources. But the biblical record being obviously the the standard. Um, obviously, if you're not Christian, you have to kind of come up with your own. Um, a Christian acceptable definition of good, which can work for other people, is something along the lines of um, something that is. Uh, working within the confines of the world as best you understand it to uh, to bring forward the plan of God, or as, you know, if you want to take a more abstract sense of that, to uh, move the world forward in some way that is uh, long-term beneficial. Um, and of course, the problem with that, taking it in a more uh, agnostic sense of the term, is that uh, you have a lot of caveats built into it, which is why I prefer to just keep it simpler when I talk about these things. Because when I say, you know, working for uh the good as defined by god there is no need for me to go and dissemble and talk about all the the caveats that that make that uh phrase work because it just does but obviously many people don't accept that term so i'm i will try in this to uh to work from it from a more psychological and a more uh uh a more agnostic set of definitions
0: yeah what would you say if i said i could i, I could probably help us bridge the gap a little bit between our secular secular listeners and our religious listeners. Because I think, fundamentally, there is—I actually shouldn't call it secular, because that's not exactly right—but there is a uh, more agnostic definition that does not at all contradict, I think, with, the, uh, with your particular Christian definition, or perhaps if we had another Christian, that might give something very slightly different once you get into the the Nuances, but your simple form works for here. So I'm going to give that a try. Actually, I want you to tell me if this bridges for you, so that that'll be good for us for the conversation, because that way we're on the same page. So, sure, uh, yeah, I, I did a tiny bit of like two second digging on the etymology of good because I often find the way that the word arose in language naturally captures what people were looking at. Right And when I say looking at it, it means they were trying to capture something that was fundamentally real and describe it with an idea before it gets abstracted and then abstracted again and again and again through the evolution of language and the uh, evolution of cultures. So we have here um from uh, this is spanning old English, something like a cobbling of excellent, fine, valuable, desirable, favorable, beneficial, full, entire complete, um, and also advantage, benefit, gift, virtue, property. Now, that spans way too much, right? So that's, on its own, that's not really useful. But if we look at um, some of the Proto-Germanic, it's something like fitting or suitable, or in later Old English, we have good development, a kind, benevolent, holy. Um, And then only later does it get applied to be skilled, something like well-behaved or large of great value. So when we say like someone is a like a good carpenter, that's actually an abstraction off of the original definition. I think uh, if we go back as far as we can, the words fitting and suitable are probably really key here. And why? Why yep. is that? Well, oh yeah, see, I can see we're starting to agree already. So for those of you who have listened to me talk on the podcast uh, quite a lot, I often operate with uh, what I'll, I guess I'll describe it as like a secular agnostic definition of, of God, which I actually think is a, uh, I think is a Catholic definition uh, that comes from the phrasing, like, I am that I am, something like rephrasing that as like, God is that which is, which is like saying, there's nothing more fundamental or nothing more essential than God. Like God is the, uh, let's say, you could say like, God is the object to which we are all subject Which is different than a lot of times people lionize the subject, but we forget that if you're a subject, you're subject to, right? Something else. Subjects are not the masters, they are the thing that are mastered over. And then we look at that definition fitting, suitable, and all of a sudden, Things seem to snap together because if God is the object, God is what is real. There's nothing more real than God. There's nothing more full or entire than complete than God. Like, there's like God is that which is. There is, you can't contradict God, right? That you can think of, you know, we, we describe it as God's plan, which is a very human way of describing it, but you could almost think of it like God is that. If God is that which is, God is that that inevitability, God is what you must conform to because fundamentally, you know, it is what is in your desires, your plans are not necessarily, uh, you know, extant outside of you, but God is, right? So yeah, if, if we could, yeah, and I'll stop here, but we could bridge the gap and say, what is good is in accord with God and God's will God's yes, will no, yeah. is is that which is which is or that is which is and that therefore that which is suited to the objective circumstance which is the same thing as saying the will of God to me anyway like I don't I don't, when I hear like the will of God I hear the objective set of circumstances with those particular people in that particular time and place uh in accordance with the essential fundamental laws of reality so so in terms of our definitions, do you think they're the same actually? Like if I think that is which is fitting and suitable is good in, in in yours?
1: Uh I think that there are some some things that are lost there, but for the purposes of fiction writing, I don't think they're that significant. Um one thing uh, that I will uh, point out uh, while you were talking there, I, this, uh, this is probably something some of the audience has heard. Um, if you go through something like Jordan Peterson's walkthrough of the book of Genesis or something like that, he, at least when he did that, wasn't much of a believer in the literal God, but he would still use uh, the word of God, the, the plan of God, things like that in there in a psychological sense. Uh, I think his analysis is very interesting, but I do think it's a little incomplete. But for the purposes of stories and fiction writing, it is certainly complete enough to get a good picture of how to how to describe good and evil inside of the context of a story because inside of the context of a story you don't necessarily like the preconditions of the world are not the same as the preconditions of our world and whether or not you think a literal you know actual uh you know person of god is a precondition of our world doesn't matter if you're writing a story where that isn't the precondition so in a sense um when you're writing especially speculative fiction you have a a certain amount of flexibility to 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 iron out those wrinkles between where i think some of that stuff falls short um personally so i i, I think in that in most cases that is sufficient for uh this conversation
0: excellent so hopefully our uh viewers here or listeners i really should say um can all follow us regardless of whether they're coming from uh, a religious perspective or not, which is is what I would like. Now we seem to have come, you know, we, we solved the mystery of the definition of good, right? I, I realize we're standing on the shoulders of people who've thought this through much, much more deeply, which makes it much easier for us. Uh, it's not that we're super geniuses. Well, certainly not I. But with good somewhat uh, established here, there, I think virtue also plays a role because when people think of someone who's good they usually uh, think that synonymous with saying someone or some character is virtuous uh so two questions you know what would you define as virtuous and is good the same as virtuousness
1: uh there is a high amount of overlap virtue is generally a description assigned to um a, a character or a set of actions that uh, that result that are you know good in the context of their setting. Um, so virtue is sort of the property of something that does good, whereas good is more of um, I guess you could describe an action as good, a person who repeatedly does good things as virtuous. I guess would be my distinction.
0: Yeah, I agree with the heavy overlap here. Um, because if you dig back and you look at the uh, word it comes from, and I guess this is a really controversial term, but virtue, um, there's a, a bunch of words associated with it. And when we think of our common definition of like, you know, good is essentially that which is in accord with God's will, right? Um, this will make sense. But virtue is. Uh, like moral life and conduct, a particular moral excellence, force, strength, vigor, moral strength, qualities, both, uh, sorry, qualities and abilities, moral strength, high character, goodness, manliness, valor, bravery, courage, and war, excellence, worth. Um, and it comes from virtue, it comes from uh, a root meaning man. However, if we look at the word virtue uh, as it gets expanded on other areas, like we think of uh, as it's applied to, well, like, what's a virtuous woman? It's typically chastity or sexual purity. Um, and I think that that tells us something right away. What that tells us is what is virtuous uh, are those qualities that lead to one being able to fulfill the will of God. And that changes as we try to apply that to different types of people. In this case, um, you know. If, What hopefully shouldn't be controversial. Uh, You know, YouTube don't kill us. But (laughs) um, when you apply it to men and women, there are different virtues because there are different circumstances surrounding surrounding their, uh, what Aristotle, Aristotle would call telos. Um,
1: Yes. And it's it's not just gender specific. Um, There are definitely going to be situations where it is virtuous for one person to be a pacifist or to not fight and virtuous for another person in very similar situations where basically the only factor is the person. Uh, There will be it will be virtuous for them to to fight, to take action, to stand up, potentially do something violent. Um, And so it's it's not about just the action. It's the action with the context of the world around the person and the person themselves. And that's one of the advantages in fiction is because oftentimes you have a window into the the psyche, the mind of the person who's taking the action. So we can very much more clearly define and demonstrate which actions are virtuous and which ones are not.
0: Yeah, that is that does Allow for what I would argue the theme, many themes to arise in their given times. You, you'll, I've noticed at least that this conversation keeps bringing about that there is a kind of—I don't want to call it a mystery—but uh, there's an unknown factor, right? That we human beings are constantly trying to figure out, which is okay. Given these particular people, or given myself in these different cir- situations, like circumstances. Uh, you could ask it this way like, What is God's will in the situation? Like, there's a, a kind of humility that one takes to try and find out what is virtuous for me in this given place and time. Um, now, sometimes that's like really, you know, whether in fiction or whether in real life, that's pretty standard for most people for most of the time, throughout most of time, right? Like, usually murder is bad. Um, well, murder, it depends on how you define things, right? But there is a time where, you know, you're defending your family from an invading host of barbarians. And then like, well, you know, it's- That you wouldn't know, be you, murder we, though. The,
1: way, the way we definitionally assign murder is that it is not in defense, right? Murder is an action that you take to kill somebody who is- uh, specifically somebody who is not defending themselves at that particular moment, right? Even when somebody, uh, when two people get in a fight, and they're really trying to hurt each other, and one of them dies, we don't usually call that murder, we call that manslaughter for a very good reason. Because we understand that the term murder is reserved for when you should not have done that.
0: Yeah, that, that falls. I, I used to make an argument that's basically based on universal preferable behavior. If you guys know about Stefan Molyneux years ago, where I would, I would, play around with the word murder doing exactly that. And you are exactly right. It's it's a morally loaded word. It has the immorality embedded in it um, for it to potentially be murder. And yeah, it would be self-defense or defense of your family if you're being invaded and have to, you know, kill someone in defense. But in terms of that question about um, circumstance, I think that uh, it reminds me of a, it's one of the first aphorisms that I wrote. And some of those are you know, just garbage, but, uh, I write them anyway to get, to find the good ideas out of all the bad ones. But there's an idea I call the idiot's whimsy. And I'd like to dispel something amongst the audience or among the audience, I should say that I think we both run into quite a lot. Um, you know, when we're in a creative space, there is a propensity toward this, um, extreme subjectivism, right? Because it's, it's hard to, Hard line measure something. And we're talking about morally good in writing or moral, moral goodness in writing or virtue in writing. I'm very sure there's going to be people saying, well, look, you guys are already admitting it depends on the person, the place, and the circumstance. Therefore, it's all subjective, right? Like, uh, that's just your opinion, man, is the, <laughs> the phrasing, the way that we typically say that to mock it. But the aphorism I wrote, I, I called the idiot's whimsy because just because something is subject to factors um that may be even individual i would argue that it's not determined by the whim of that individual right something might be particular to you in your time and place but that doesn't mean you get to you know merely decide it right you could say that perhaps god's will applies specifically to each individual but that individual is subject to the will and not the other way around. Does that sound about right as a way to point out that mm-hmm. this isn't just your opinion?
1: Yeah, and it's it's sort of a an a, there's that that it, what that is is an attack on one of the fundamental pillars of language to to say that sort of thing and it it sounds weird to say that but it is because right the fundamental thing about about what they're saying is because there's a lot of factors and I can't necessarily predict all the factors going in. Thus, the only, you know, thus essentially that means that I don't, the factors don't matter. It's now a subjective decision when that's not what is going on. And I think it's very dangerous when people say that. And I, I see this from time to time in the, the experiences of writers and creatives who have this, this opinion is that they tend to uh, apply it to themselves, and it's disastrous because just like in a story, hopefully in your own uh creative journey, good things bring about good actions bring about good results and bad uh actions bring about bad results and one of those ultimate bad actions you can take is a decision like good and evil is subjective in my own life because essentially that's it's not a good thing to do. Um, especially when it comes to creating things, because you've just removed a, a major constraint that is, that is pushing you toward completing things rather than just doing them because you felt like it at that moment.
0: Yeah. There's no, there's no measuring stick, right? It becomes this, mm-hmm. uh, it, it becomes, I think by definition an indulgence, is it not?
1: It is. It's, um, it's an indulgence and it's it's an easy cop out it's a it's an escape avenue when somebody sees that they have something that they should do it's e- it's an escape avenue to say oh it's all subjective that just comes from my subconscious or that just comes from my preferences it doesn't actually matter because saying that lets you get out of doing the thing that you have that conviction that you should do and you stop listening to convictions often enough they don't come back or at least they don't come back very loud and well, you'll suffer. Everything you do will suffer. It applies to characters yeah. as well, of course.
0: Yeah. Uh, before we di- I want to dive into characters and talking about morally, writing morally good characters and examples and such. But before we do, uh, there's a couple more notes in virtue. I think it would be undue if I skipped over this. So um, I have the four classic Greek virtues, but then there's also three more. Um, Christian virtues that are added on top that I think are worthwhile talking about. Um, so we have justice, prudence, temperance, and uh, this one is fortitude. I think it's usually translated uh, differently. I don't remember fortitude being listed amongst the um, the four Greeks. What's the other? What's the usual
1: word for courage? Uh, Maybe the one they use. Courage. I haven't heard yeah. this in a while
0: yeah it's courage, not fortitude, um so we'll say courage instead, so justice, prudence, temperance, courage, and then we have hope, faith and charity and something I noticed you know as we're just talking about the the fact that these people are indulging is the way that they're indul they're they're indulging as you mentioned through an escape, and they're escaping something that would require um a sacrifice essentially or some form of self denial so when I go through. I'll go through all seven. So, you know, to be just, one must hold to one's principles, even when it's not advantageous, because justice necessarily is not that which is advantageous. It's, well, it's that which is in accord with what is right, right? Which is the same as what is good, which is in accord with God's will, like as, as things ought to be. And so you have to hold to your convictions, hold to your principles, like you said, even when you don't want to. You know, prudence is not being reckless, right? It's holding yourself back when you otherwise would rush forward. Temperance is controlling your consumption of a thing, right? Um, not going to excess. You know, courage is not giving in to your fear, it's putting yourself in the face of danger. Um, now, you might need to talk to me more about um, maybe hope, but because uh, I, I, I would have a hard time distinguishing it from faith, really. But faith to me is this attitude ahead of time to already decide to put your will in accordance with God's will and say that which God brings into being is good. Right? That's how I, I define faith. It's an orientation of yourself toward affirming uh if we're speaking in a Christian sense, God. And then charity obviously is the giving to others where you are, you know, denying hoarding to oneself. Um, and, and again, you, if you want to talk more on hope, if you're familiar with it, you can, uh, but what do you think of my, is, is that significant that identification that there's something about self-denial or, um, yeah, self-denial is a, a little phrasing that comes to mind now that's intrinsically tied up with, um, the, the virtues.
1: Yeah, because, uh, I would say that I'll speak to that first. Uh, Self-denial is another way of saying that you have that your will is controlling your emotions. That the the elephant rider is controlling the elephant in the psychological sense. That you are able to uh, to um, your your mind and your spirit are in some sense able to uh, get a master over the flesh and the emotions that go along with that, and to thus uh, have an impact on the world. Most of these virtues refer to. refusing to let the elephant be the director. And essentially, you know, once you are clear and able to, you know, once you have a conviction about something, you should be able to uh, to overcome all of your your negative compunctions and, and, you know, make progress toward it. And that may be something that is dangerous. That may be something that is incredibly unpleasant. But that's how, you know, that's how that is. And all of them work through the concept of the conscience. Now, you can argue that Conscience is a is a some psychological trick. It's very much not. Um, humans have a conscience. Now, most of the most people in the world today learn not to listen to it. They uh, they're told that what they feel is bad, they shouldn't do, and what they feel is good, they should do. But that's not really what it is, and it's not really a rational thing either. You can have a uh, you can have a, your conscience tell you a conviction without it being something that you've rationally figured out yet. So it's definitely something that's a third a third thing that is not rational and it is not emotional, so it's something very distinct and listening to that is something that uh that is a major part of what distinguishes somebody who is uh who is who is doing good from somebody who's doing evil I won't call people good or evil everybody's both let's just get that out of the way. I would also speak on hope there briefly because you mentioned that I should um, hope is less. Uh, Faith is the understanding that essentially faith is surrendering control to somebody else or, in you know, God to 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 a greater thing and accepting that your understanding of things is not complete. Whereas hope is more or less the understanding. Basically, hope is is simplified heavily. Is the expectation that as long as each of your steps is a good and virtuous step, that the outcome will be good and virtuous, even if you don't live to see it?
0: Okay, that makes perfect sense. Then that's—I I, my brain did wrap those two into one, but I can see the the utility in separating them because they are one is more of a, um, you know, consequence or function of the other. Faith being the more fundamental. Yes. Uh, of the two. Uh, I do want to speak there's, to the conscience. Sorry, oh, ahead, let, me, no. let me go, go ahead.
1: ahead. Faith is definitely fundamental. Uh, obviously, some of those come from Greek um, thought as well, but in terms of the Christian sense, faith is the fundamental underpinning virtue. Um, obviously, there's you could find all the all the Bible passages you want. Basically, summary: without faith, I am nothing. You you have the faith that you you are submitting to a higher power, to a higher goal, and as long as you pursue that without doing anything individually bad, everything else flows from that. So all of the others come from that one. And that that's a Christian idea.
0: Yeah, well, thank you for, for fleshing that out. Um, and I actually do, you know, I don't disagree at all that faith is extremely important. Um, I actually think that without faith, one turns to uh, life denial is the way that the... Uh, the Germans for all their terribleness, the way that they phrase it, right, An, or a negation of life itself. Um, this is the same. If you guys ever read um, Paradise Lost, Satan basically makes this his thesis. Uh, it's in Faust as well. Uh, this idea that okay, well, I'm against God, therefore I'm against all things that God brings into being. Fundamentally, my purpose as Satan is to negate all being, all life, all everything itself. Um, and that comes with a rejection of the world being the fundamental, and uh, the the arrogance, and then the resultant pride from that ar- arrogance. That like my will is the correct will, and God's will is the incorrect will. Right? That
1: reality is wrong, and I am right. Yeah, um, and that's that's absolutely correct. Where you you know you have the seven virtues, you also have the seven deadly sins. This is very much a Catholic idea, but I still like it, even though I'm not Catholic the all of the all of the seven deadly sins spring out of a lack of faith and a essentially a focusing on the self over the higher thing all of them come out of that every single one so all all seven of the 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 virtues come out of faith all seven of the, the the seven deadly sins come out of the lack thereof
0: yeah and i think uh we could tie that into the idea of conscience, because I did want to wrap back around to that. Um, now, my idea of conscience is very much uh, influenced by Yoon, who was a psychoanalyst, um, but I would argue he came from a much more spiritual perspective. He gets accused of being a cult, which isn't exactly, it's not exactly wrong, but it, it it's wrong enough that it we need to dig into it, but the idea. Um, so we're we're going to probably not probably we're certainly going to depart on some of the nuances here, but I think the fundamental line will be exactly the same. So you mentioned people think of their conscience as this, uh, you know, tertiary. Um, uh, what would we say? Epiphenomenon. I think is the proper term for that, like something second. But Yun brought brought up. It's like no, no, no. Your conscience is basically like your soul like that's more fundamental than your ego the thing that we we commonly refer to as i is not you that's like this tiny little piece of you a fragment of you that pays attention but it hardly understands anything and deep down your conscience is um where let's say your conscience is where the spark of divinity is and it's your job as you know the elephant rider to actually pay attention and see that spark and to bring that spark up and out and manifest it in yourself, uh, which would put you in accord with God because with the union psycho- uh, psychological perspective, you are integrating, making yourself integrous, right? And, uh, uh, what would you say? A person with integrity um, by, let's say, identifying that line between good and evil in yourself Acknowledging the evil parts, and so that you can essentially reincorporate them so that they're in accord with the good rather than with, with what is evil, what is destroying you, what's turning you against life or turning you against God, right? So it's, it's, uh, he, he would describe it less as being like the elephant rider mastering the elephant and more as, uh, let's say because that 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 description is like that that the elephant rider could yank on a rein and make the elephant turn whereas the union perspective is like you can't actually force the elephant to turn but you can over time train it to follow the uh would say we we'd call the narrow path it's a much more negotiable or no, it's described much more like a negotiation and perhaps we wouldn't even um disagree that way because i think perhaps you you would argue that virtue is practiced and gained through practice yeah. rather than it being a force of will
1: yeah um a an act of virtue is potentially an act of will but it is something that is it might be virtuous the first time but it is more virtuous practiced over time and it's also easier for that person to continue to um to take those actions along that line the the longer they go along that path the easier it gets So it's not just a matter of, um, you know, I use the elephant and elephant rider um, metaphor loosely, because in reality, what a lot of the times happens in a person who is trying to do good is the elephant is crashing off into the jungle in the wrong direction. And at some point that rider basically has to get off and walk and it sucks because your, your emotions are running off and saying this sucks. I hate this. Everything's terrible. I really just want to do the other thing. And every time, every step in the direction you want to go is really hard. But in eventually you know the the elephant calms down and comes back, and you know maybe starts and maybe starts to appreciate what's happening, maybe not, but it doesn't matter. Um, that that analogy does break down at that point, where it's not really that because you're you're dealing with uh, yourself as a at least dual-natured creature. Um, you have a you have your uh, your material self from which comes your bodily needs, your emotions, things like that. You have your intellectual process, which kinda, in most people, separates itself out and to do its own thing, and to think while they're doing something else, and to try to rationalize things, and and then you will have the spiritual aspect, which is where the conscience comes from, and the elephant rider analogy is useful, but it is not complete. Um, it's it's got its problems, uh, and when you deal with a, the fact that a human being really is that sort of set of various things which are all kind of forced to live together in an incomplete harmony uh that's kind of where you get the struggle between somebody trying to do good but also but ending up doing evil anyway right that's where you get all that
0: yeah that's kind of the idea that uh you know if you're not an integrated unit you're full of like pagan spirits and you're pulled in a multitude of directions and you're always lost because you're never able to go any particular way. You're always yanked off the path, if you will. Um, yep. So with all that moral philosophizing out of the way, let's actually talk about something more closely related to writing, as you were very kindly trying to do earlier. And I think um, we'll start with writing morally good characters. So when in your experience, Michael, when you're writing morally good characters, Like what steps, do you even have to take steps to make them that way? Is that something that comes naturally to you? Do you often write morally good characters uh, or do you typically uh, write characters that might be a little bit more gray? Is that grayness merely, you know, the early 2000s, nihilism, infecting everything? Like, you know, in your writing, what do you do? What do you do? How do you focus on that? I threw a bunch of questions at you. Answer at your, uh, according to how you want.
1: Yeah, I, I do tend to have characters who are at least trying to do something good. I make them all incomplete in how they do it. Um, there are a few times where I have a character who is embittered and disgruntled and more or less is just kind of doing that thing where they're they're kind of spinning their wheels because they're just trying to... Um, they're embittered by their experiences and they um, their, their journey is to learn to go back and actually start taking steps of being virtuous again. Uh, most of my characters, though... Um, in most aspects of their life, you see them doing good, but the story revolves around exploiting some of their weaknesses to um, to make them make compromises in some way. And oftentimes, I will, I won't actually necessarily punish that. Those compromises may be temporary problems, but uh, if the character can overcome them and come up with something good out of that, pro- out of the initial problem. Then they'll potentially end up better than where they started, if not back to at least back to where they started in terms of um, you know not having those problems. But I do tend to generally avoid the everything's morally gray, it's all doesn't matter, nothing makes sense, ha ha. That is a early two thousands, you know. sort of like every every time I see that in a book like various emo bands start playing in my head because I knew people in high school who were like that and it just reads I can read it in their voice and it's really sad and frustrating um, in my opinion the one of the things that makes a story very uh, you know compelling is that it has a very clear understanding of what is good and what is evil whether the characters are doing it is a different story but the idea uh, a compelling character is one who is forced to confront a part of their life where they are not doing as good as they could, and at some point they have to, you know, they, they confront it, they at first fail to live up to what they should be living up to, and then later on they have a, a turning and they, um, they begin to, to do good in that aspect, uh, even if it causes them to make sacrifices. In fact, sacrifices they would never have contemplated at the beginning of the story.
0: Yeah, so my my brain went a couple places. Start with your process of writing characters. It sounds to me that um you write generally good but flawed characters. Would that be the, the right way to, to say it?
1: Yes. I don't believe that any person real or fictional is a perfectly good character. Um there are there's no right, there's no journey for a character who's perfectly good, even assuming that you could create one. Uh, and my experience with people trying to create perfectly good characters is that the reader hates their guts, because, well, um, nobody likes somebody who's perfect. It calls them out, and also they they don't in- go through any struggles. I don't. I think that's partly incomplete. I think somebody who was perfect would still go through some struggles, but I don't. You know, that's not what we see when people try to write it.
0: Yeah, that reminds me of. Um, so I, I, I've thought a lot about certain, uh, what do we say, not paradoxes, that's so not the right word. There are certain terms that end up being kind of oxymoronic. And I think what that identifies to me is that the, the concept itself is bankrupt, right? So when we say like perfectly good, um, I think it's actually wrong to say that perfectly good is, well, I, actually, I think there's a problem with the word perfect to be frank but th- th- there's an issue where when someone tries to do it it never comes out right but then if you look at the most let's say uh, like the, the most divine hero figure um we'll stick with christianity and say that's christ right so like uh and i got this from jordan i'm not a christian scholar though i, I really should study more christianity uh, and i will in the future i promise guys but you know even um you know christ on the cross he says uh for a moment you know like was it's Father. it uh was it why I has I'm trying the to make sure correct names. why have you forsaken me? Go ahead,
1: yeah. My god, yeah. why have you forsaken me? Yeah, thank you.
0: Um, uh, but I really, I really liked when Juran ported that out because he said, Look, even the uh, most divine uh, person, right? The thing that you could the highest aim that you could aim toward has a moment of wavering, right? Like, there is no which, which kind of suggests there is no one hundred percent good. There is the person who uh, you could say, I think this is going to be the name of Jordan's next book is "He Who Wrestles with God." There is like that person who is doing his best and struggling toward what is good, and that is the highest good, not the attainment, because the attainment assumes that one already knows. And therefore, one's knowledge is complete, which just reminds me too much of Satan, essentially, right? Because like to assume like my knowledge is complete is to assume that I know, therefore, my will trumps whatever contradicts it. And that would mean if the will or the, the reality outside of me, if God contradicts my will, it must be wrong, versus the highest being a struggle toward that which is good acknowledges the gap between the subject and the object. And so that's you know, that is perhaps why flawed, like even the the most morally good characters still must be flawed or else they are rejected by the human spirit.
1: And one thing I will point out is that uh, in the case of Christ, a character who had struggles, but no, no obvious flaws, the whole point of the story is that people rejected him. That's, that's the point, is people were called out by the fact that he was, he was too perfect. The same people who were saying, we want him to be king, literally seven days later, basically hauled him out and nailed him to a, nailed him to a tree, right? People don't like perfect. Perfect calls people out. So when you're dealing with fiction, uh, you will find that people will treat your quote-unquote perfect characters as villains. Not necessarily because that's what you intend, but because that's psychology working against you as the writer.
0: Yeah, that comes up uh, in the Brothers Karamazov, which I have read, actually, uh, that one, and where it's that, that really famous case um, with the the jailer and Christ again, he shows up again, and essentially they lock him up because it's like, you're too perfect, man. We can't compare to you. Uh, you're ruining our whole, our whole plan. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. People react that way. Um, so why don't we go through a couple examples of actually workable morally good characters uh from you can you can label ones in your own fiction or just establish works of fiction you think that the listeners are going to recognize um are there any characters that really for you stand out as like really successful good um you know characters
1: um there's a few obviously i i like a lot of the characters you see in the biblical record for this um some of the ones that are obviously explained as good characters include uh, David as a good one. Um, he makes absurd amounts of mistakes. He's not like he's referred to as a character who is who is good. And you see that, in the, you know, if you read the stories, he actually seems to be good, but he makes a ton of mistakes. His family life is a, is a tire fire because he just doesn't have the courage to, to, to manage his family life in a morally upstanding way, because that would be difficult. Um there's some other there's other characters in there as well. I'll just I won't name them in, I'll name a couple and not give too much detail. Uh one of them being Job. Uh that's an underserved one as far as people who aren't Christians don't read that one very much. Um another one that's potentially a little interesting is um uh, to use Daniel, uh the character of Daniel. Um so go ahead and try those out from that source uh from uh fiction sources uh in the general market. One of the ones that everybody really likes, um, and this is both the, the movie portrayal and the book portrayal, is Sam Gamgee in the, uh, in the Lord of the Rings books. Um, he is basically good. His flaws come from the fact that he is um, – his flaws are primarily not flaws of his character. They're flaws of his knowledge and his limitations, where he often does something that is beyond his limitations, and he probably should have known not to do that. But you you appreciate him for that because he you know he's he's just you know he's just such a you know a care how, how do I say this he's somebody who just seems like too pure for the world he's in but you still but in a way that doesn't make you feel called out he's humble and he's uh, he's laid back but he just sort of is infinitely loyal and infinitely friendly to almost everybody except for one particular character and the one time he's not friendly. It's a disaster, right? The one time he he just lets his prejudices get the better of him, it nearly wrecks everything and dooms the world.
0: Um, I have not actually read Lord of the Rings, uh, so tell me what that action is for, for us. Uh,
1: so, um, yeah... I'm, if you haven't read the Lord of the Rings, if you haven't seen the movies, it's the same in both of them. Uh, him and him and his, his, um, his boss, his, he calls him his master, basically the person who he was the gardener for back home. And he is now adventuring with who is Frodo Baggins, who is carrying the one ring. Essentially the, the objectification of sin and evil is being carried by his boss. And they run across this creature called Gollum, who is, who has been to where they need to go to destroy this ring. And Frodo, his boss, takes pity on Gollum because he sees this as potentially what's going to happen to him if he holds this thing for too long. Because that's what go- Gollum is—a creature created by the Ring. He was a pretty meek little creature who got a hold of this thing, and it absolutely just twisted him into something horrific and something that is just miserable. And Frodo is an infinitely sympathetic to this to this Gollum creature, but Sam doesn't trust him. Sam, Gamgee. Hates this creature because this because for the same reason that this creature is constantly reminding him of what's going to happen to his friend and master if they hold on to this ring too long, and Sam never trusts it. And there's a there's a big turning moment in the character of Gollum where he's Frodo is being friendly enough to him, try to get him to have his his old self from a, potentially a thousand years ago uh, when he was a normal person, reassert himself as as the as a person as a somebody who could have an a normalish life, and there's a big turning moment where um, it's partly the cruelty of the mean just meanness that Sam does to this character that causes him to to that to revert back and to begin plotting against them and very nearly to succeed
0: oh that's tragic i didn't I really need to to read tolkien i um, yeah i I unfortunately came late into uh, fantasy and so I experienced a bunch of other things in the by the time I uh the the films for Lord of the Rings were airing uh obviously this is backwards but to me it seemed generic because everything had copied Tolkien and yep. so yeah so it's it's unfortunate I haven't even seen the films um so maybe I'll see the films What I will I'll, say I'll, go, ahead, go ahead
1: In the films the Andy Serkis's portrayal of Gollum is really 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 good um and he actually Andy Serkis actually does the the modern audiobook for the Lord of the Rings the actual voice actor for that character is the guy who does the entire audiobook. And when he does Gollum's lines, he does them in his Gollum voice from the movies. And it's just, sorry, this is a major sidetrack, but they're really, really good audiobooks. They use the soundtrack a little heavy, but uh, it's really good, partly because it's that guy's, the actor for that character who's doing it and his, his little bit development role through it. And his tragic story is such an important part to how, the conclusion happens. And it, all the actors in those movies were, they basically almost like became method actors for the purpose of, the, the, of creating those movies in a lot of ways. Um But Andy Circus is a weird one. And he definitely um, he definitely came to identify with the, the character a lot more than I think he has his other roles.
0: Maybe I'll have to jump in with the audio book. Uh, I, I typically like reading the, the actual text, uh, get more out of it, but that definitely sounds excellent. I wanted to comment on, what might make um, say it's Sam? Well, am I pronouncing that name right? Sam
1: Wise, Gmg. Just refer to as Wise.
0: Sam. Sam, all right, Sam Gmg. But uh, Sam, his character seems to work to me because he is good yet lacking certain virtues. That's what occurred to me when you were describing him, and the reason why I'm pointing that out is cause, because maybe that's a useful thing to consider when you're writing the flaws into your characters is that it's not a question of his moral goodness. It's the fact that he doesn't possess certain aspects of uh, let's say in this particular case, masculine virtue. And that makes him relatable and likable, right? Cause he's a good person. He just, he, he, he doesn't have certain strengths of characters to, to facilitate that goodness all of the time. Uh, you know, and so, and that resulted in a tragic outcome
1: in some ways that's true in other ways it's it's actually that specific instance where he he lets his emotions get the better of him uh what you see throughout the books to that point is him being friends with everything he's like he gets emotionally attached to their pack animals and at least two occasions this guy is like he's the most friendly the most reverent person when it comes to all these weird and wacky creatures that they run into um he he doesn't really shout at anybody. He doesn't really get mad. He gets afraid, but he, you know, he, he doesn't let fear make him run away. When he's afraid, he tends to step in front of people he thinks he should be protecting and put himself in the way. It's this one character of Gollum who he, he, it might help to understand that he's somebody who, who heard about this character as a, as a boogeyman from stories that his, uh, his old boss told him when he was basically a teenager. Um, the character of Gollum is somebody who uh, Frodo's uncle and Sam's former boss encountered in a dark cave almost a hundred years ago. And, you know, he heard these stories from this old, you know, retired adventurer, basically, about this creature that promised to, if he, that basically that encountered him in a cave and promised to eat him if he didn't have, if he didn't think quickly, more or less. So this is a character he was, he was predisposed to be prejudiced against, And when they encounter, he just cannot, he can't let his pity over, he can't get his, get his pity to the point where it overrides all that existing prejudice.
0: Right. So, uh, one, I was trying to think where I want to go from here because we, we've covered a little bit on writing morally good characters. I guess, um, when we've got some really great examples, do you have any particular specific advice that you would give, um, if you say you've got people listening, and they want to write, because there are a lot of people write writing uh, right now. I think I didn't actually pay any attention to the um, like indie publishing scene at all, and the group of modern writers. So uh, people are throwing around the the name Iron Age of Writing, um, which I think a lot of them want to harken back to like more morally black and white stories, focusing on like moral virtue and goodness and hero stories, things like that. Uh, I still don't know anything really about that. I haven't dug into it in the least. However, I think there there seems to me from a very tertiary view, tertiary is the wrong word, distant view, that that is of interest. So do you have any advice for people who might want to be able to write these good characters, um, to succeed at writing them, and not to come across as either, uh, I would use the word propagating, propagandistic there we go i had to slow down to say it or otherwise contrived contrived uh, obviously we mentioned not making them perfectly like super perfect 100 percent good they still have to have flaws is there anything else that you might say to the, that
1: i will say that in my experience a lot of what's in the modern quote-unquote iron age the characters are not very good and i say that not in terms of they're not competent it's that they are not good they're they have virtues, but their virtues are not being applied, and they actually often come off as having villain arcs more than they do having hero arcs, because essentially the, these writers have been basically reading this you know, 90s and two, early 2000s fiction for so long it's, it's infected their brains, where everything's morally gray, and the, the person who wins is just as much a villain as the person who loses and all that stuff. It's terrible. Um, and you can call somebody a virtuous person all you like. You have to demonstrate it in their granular nitty gritty actions. Whenever have a character who supposedly be be a hero who, you know, ignores, you know, ignores the, the well-being of his subordinates in some way. If he's cold and standoffish when people need him to be, you know, understanding, compassionate um, or potentially charitable, that's not a good character. That might be somebody who is doing something that is going to benefit the world, but that is not the same thing. Uh, a character who is good is somebody who is um, who is moved essentially by um, by all sorts of concerns. as you said all all these seven virtues or you know moral foundations theory, somebody who is who is uh, has access to all of the moral foundations and who doesn't let any of them go you know get tossed into the bin to maximize one of the other ones. When you have a character who just cares about justice, that's a, vi- a villainous character. When you have somebody who just cares about making sure everybody's taken care of, that's actually a villainous character. Somebody who is letting all the other moral aspects fall by the wayside to accomplish one moral task is a villain. And I think this is where I think a lot of the Iron Age is falling down, is there are people who want, essentially, they want to make everything simple, so they distill it down to one moral axis. And that's not how that works. You kind of have to show somebody who is, you know, who is a little bit more dynamic and has a little bit more depth to them in terms of what they care about. You have to show them caring about multiple things. Oftentimes having to stop pursuing their goal to care about something else, right? Because essentially what that's saying, when they do that, what they are saying is, my goal is important. But doing this thing right now that my conscience told me to do, that's more important even if it's going to mean I lose the thing I've been chasing for a long time. And that is one of the, the thing I think a lot of these um, creators are failing to do is to is to set that up. And there's a few people who are OK at that and a few people who are hit and miss. I find, for example, um, some of John De La Rosa's work uh, is very hit and miss on this. He does it well in some instances and badly in others. But he at least he seems to be doing it more often lately, which is good. Um, Whereas some other authors seem to to not have it at all, a character either doesn't have a goal to give up to start, you know, to go chase somebody else's problems, which doesn't really show any virtue at all, or they they don't stop and help other people; they continue to pursue their goals single-mindedly, and that's that's a problem. Um, another thing I would say is that good is not the same thing as peaceful is not the same thing as uh as um it's not the same thing as um kind there are times when good does not mean that you are nice to people in fact there's a lot of times you can point to uh the famous uh example in the gospels of christ going into the temple and literally whipping people out of the building and throwing their their belongings out after them uh that's not an exaggeration that's exactly what happened uh he this is this is not a nice thing to do uh and in fact there were people who were trying to uh get him who were trying to get him hurt after that um and if, you know eventually that was part of the charges that were against him when he was killed uh a famous quote from uh from an author i like uh c.s lewis referring to his his ultimate good character aslan in his books um it referring you know this is a character who's a lion and uh somebody says well he's a lion is he safe and the other characters look at look at this one crazy say safe. Of course he's not safe. He's a lion, but he is good, and that's it's a good example of what's going on there. And it, obviously that's that's the Asling figure is a Christ figure in those stories, but in general that's true of good characters. Good characters are not going to do what you ask necessarily. They're not going to if you come to them with a problem they are not necessarily going to fix it the way you wanted to in the least harmful way to all your other problems because oftentimes that's what people will do is they'll want somebody to help them solve their exact problem and not touch all the other problems they've gotten comfortable with a good character or a you know a good action would be to potentially go a little further than that and actually help them in ways that they didn't want to be helped uh if possible for example you know um Aslan isn't just there to rescue uh, the character who's been kidnapped. He does a lot more than that. Um, he gets the other, some of the other characters involved in an actual full-on pitched battle. Um, he does kind of essentially set a moral standard on all the characters that they are expected to to follow, and they all just understand that there are consequences for a disappointment. So. When you make a character who is good, don't make them safe. Don't make them somebody who is just like, you know, a kitten pawing at things. That's not that's not good either. And I, I think Iron Age is not very good at establishing this right now. I think it will get better, though.
0: I hope that it does. Um, makes me feel a little bit good. Uh, for those of you out there, if you want, maybe... Perhaps I did a decent job. Let me know. Uh, go listen to the audiobook for Juan's book, Broken, and tell me if Conti fits our definition of good. There are a couple examples that I, I thought fit. Uh, so to entice the entice the audience to go read my work, I will I'll, I'll go through just a couple of them. You mentioned having to give up something like you really wanted and in order to pursue something higher. Uh, there's a particular scene, without spoiling too much, where the it's hinted at in the very first, uh, let's say, I think page of the first chapter and uh, which is this big expedition and a year goes by that finally this big expedition is coming about and they're right at the threshold of the place they want to explore and they're woefully unprepared and disaster strikes. And essentially Conti has to just give up the whole thing, turn around because his um, his adopted daughter is uh, essentially suffering, poisoning, and he's like, okay, I just got to get her out of here. Nothing else matters. Like literally nothing else matters. And, you know, sacrifice the chances for not just uh, the chances for like wealth and success and fame, but he actually knows that failing this is going to put him in massive debt that's going to cause him to lose a lot of the things that he has gained over the course of the book. Right, so he he essentially has a, a magic sword that's gone along with a few other things, and um, yeah, it's going to put him under. Essentially, um, there are a few other moments too, though. You mentioned like it doesn't necessarily mean being a pacifist, where there's a, essentially a radical revolutionary uh, guy leading a, a a fairy mob in the town who will not give up right down to the last second, and uh, Conti is. Basically trying really hard to get this guy to give up and he won't. And he has to put him down because he got the man gives him no other options. But if he doesn't do it, then well, people have died, and the chances of more people dying um because of this dude revving up a bunch of murders, well, that's a problem. Um, so you know, you could have uh hopefully that's that's a good example of a morally good character. Uh that was kind of the whole point of his character arc is to go from someone who was Evil, right? Uh, life denying, plotting revenge to becoming a good person from that through some type of self overcoming that kind of fits in with the self denial we talked about earlier. I hope if you listen to the audiobook, oh, listeners, you can let me know in the comments. Uh, now we can move on while we still have some time to talk about themes because I think the other side of, you know, writing. Good, right, good writing about goodness and, and, and justice and virtue and all that is putting forward a theme in a work that is meant to, let's say, make good proliferate in a culture? I think would be the, I don't know sociological way to describe it. Um, what is your experience with reading books that have themes that you might say uh, are good um, and or writing books uh, or stories with themes that are good?
1: I will say, when I write, I don't actually set those things going in. I um, I basically let those things get uh, developed over the course of the first and often the second draft. And then I strengthen them later drafts. So I don't go in with some message that I'm expecting to push regardless. Um, the definition of a story that is pushing a message regardless of whether or not it's actually has its workings and is is established and essentially proved by the story, that's a, call, a story we call propaganda. And I try very hard not to do that. Um, a person who does push a, a message or a theme too hard does have that problem of it becoming sort of propagandistic. And I think uh, one of the ways that, um, that you got to kind of look at this is that the, the theme is something that the characters should seem, at least to the reader, whether you came up with it beforehand or not. The theme is something that the characters are essentially proving out. It's not something that we're establishing as a baseline and just, you know, uh, just reminding the reader of constantly. It's something that the, you know, oftentimes you want to start with its contradiction and basically exhaust all avenues th- to lead to the contradiction throughout the actions demonstrated in the book. And you can do that with other characters in the main character. You can do that with the main character trying all the wrong ways before they try the right one, however you want to do that. Um, thematics are tough that way in that um, the human brain is very resistant to being told how it should think. So if you apply that too hard, you will, uh, you will have readers uh, going the opposite way and, in fact, taking the opposite message so that you want them to. So I would say take a very light touch on that stuff.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I write on board with with all of that 100%. I I don't like, in fact, I refuse to have a theme before um, a story is finished because I view the theme as like a thesis. Now, I often say like a thesis is like an articulated argument, but you could also call it an answer. So, therefore, what I would start with is a question, right? So, I, I come to the story with a question. That question is the uh, the contradiction you mentioned, there's a problem uh, that needs to be resolved. The characters are faced with that problem. The question is, what is the proper way to resolve this? This this con- con- contradiction, this conflict that the story is centered around, um, or is it centered on? I don't know the proper phrasing. I'll think about it later. Uh, but yeah, you come to understand the theme through, ex- like you mentioned, exhausting the... Uh, Potential solutions, You, those are the complications in the plot as we're pursuing what is the morally correct answer. Now, if we remember what we talked about, what goodness is, it's in accordance with, let's say, God's will. Well, if you're secular, what is God's will? It's that which is the most fundamentally real. What is in accord with reality itself? What is it that brings forth the affirmation of that reality as opposed to its negation? Uh, that's a very Nietzschean way of thinking about it, but it turns out it doesn't contradict the Christian way of looking at it. I don't think, uh, which is great because then we could all figure out what we're doing here. So, so yeah, your 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 theme should not be something decided ahead of time. I really, uh, you know, I also work as an editor, and I will say when people ask me because people want me to do developmental editing, even though my specialty is line editing, they they really want me to do dev level editing, and when something i do see frequently is it's clear that the moral message was decided ahead of time and that the uh you, you said the characters do they do actually come off as villainous quite often um it's 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 actually incredibly frequent how often that is they lack a lot of virtues um and the world seems to bend to their will and not the other way around which fits into that um satanic model that we mentioned before uh does that sound like i'm we're having the same experience there
1: absolutely i have seen this uh a lot of times um what you'll see is that what happens is, is it's going back to that one moral axis thing i was talking about where if your character is supposed to be good only on one axis they're really just kind of a villain somebody with the theme going in really only defines the character's identity based on the one axis that fits that theme, maybe two. And then what happens is on the other ones, they don't, you know, they they, they put all their flaws in all the other axes and basically just set them up to be villainous. Um, a flaw potentially could cause somebody to fail on any of the moral axes. A uh, flaw is not something that is somebody just, you know, it, it could be that, you know, somebody's flaw is that they just, don't have any any concept of justice, right? That could be a flaw, but that could that flaw is probably deeper than I don't have a concept of justice. It's something else. Um, so you you see people writing these stories with a moral that they set going in, and oftentimes what happens is that that character, uh, their actions on everything but the moral axes relevant to that moral, are kind of awful. Or the world just kind of makes them work because they're like, well, it doesn't matter, right? It does matter. The workings matter. Essentially, it's like the analogy I use a lot, and I probably used it on this podcast at least once before, is that what a story is when it comes to the morals or the themes is a proof, a mathematical proof. A mathematical proof is not the answer. You know the answer before you get there. It's the workings that show that from a set of understood axioms that are tautologically true, you can get to you know, to that, uh, that answer that you were intending to get to. And, you know, you can either do that as I'm starting out here and we'll see where we go, or you can start out, start out knowing where you want to go and find your way down. As long as the workings are all there, both are okay. But people often skip the workings be, uh, because they're trying to, you know, I already decided what the moral is. Why do I need to show you absolutely do the, the, that's how that works. And that's why I refer to stories that don't do that as propaganda. And, uh, I, I highly caution people against writing that way because it's unpleasant to read. It really is. And it's really, really unpleasant to try to edit and try to take that stuff out and somebody to say, but that's what I, that's the whole point of the story. Okay. Delete it and start again. Sorry. I like, I don't know what else to tell people. Like it's difficult to, to help people with that. So I can't recommend against that sort of propagandistic mor- moral moral, uh, I guess, how do we say it? It's like, they have the moral it's this big heavy hammer and they're just going to hit every every element in the story with the same moral with the same little thing until the end and it's really frustrating
0: yeah well as someone who has edited and i actually i'm, I'm kind of lucky i've edited across the political spectrum so i've got um Clients that are actually seemingly incredibly woke, and I've got clients that are kind of the reactionary right wing types, um, and so I've had I've had to <laughs> figure out what I'm going to say. Right, I've had to do this, and it is difficult because you do get that response where it's like, "But this is like the message," and what I've what I've said to these people, uh, and I guess this is me throwing advice out there now, is that look, I understand you have this. Perspective and point of view, um, but when you if you want to give that point of view its best case, you have to do it in the most genuine way possible. That means you need to give the op like the your opposition or the op- opposing ideas as strong a shake as you could possibly do. You want to represent them well, and you want to and that what that does is it gets them to consider those factors that they weren't considering right because they were only operating under a particular moral axis uh one axis or maybe two or dimensions if we want to use that word it doesn't really matter the point is they were only considering a couple moral foundations but when you yeah. force them yeah but when you force them to consider their opposition along other moral dimensions all of a sudden it makes them have to confront those those deficits right they if they're only thinking in terms of I don't know, like let's use my myself as a, a punching bag here, right? Because I, I happen to be very, 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 very politically libertarian. Um and so if you only focus on liberty and you liberty and you don't focus on any of the other let's use moral foundations theory, right? So I don't know if I can remember these offhand. There's loyalty, uh, there's care, I think there's fairness, um there's uh sanctity, uh, sanctity and uh, justice. A, Yeah, Uh, and so like there's other things you actually have to consider, and like, and if you if you do, if you realize, okay, actually, yeah, sometimes like there's a limitation on liberty because if you don't, then injustice reigns supreme, and like everyone suffers. So that's like harm, and all all things that would be held sacred become profaned. Right like I don't know the debauchery of children or some other terrible thing, which does happen um so so yeah, that's been that'd be my advice to those of you you indie authors out there, um is if you are trying to write good characters, even if you think you are good themes, rather if you're trying to, to to do something thematically deep and significant and impactful, give. The opposite idea is their best shake, and by doing that, you'll give your own ideas a much better representation, and you'll actually kind of find out that you don't own your own ideas. Um, that that's a, a union thing, but like ideas have people, not the other way around. And when you assume, even you assume it the other way, what happens is you become a tool to the idea, and you produce propaganda, which propagates that idea like a virus. Uh, which you don't want to do. You don't want to just be the host for some pathological, shallow idea, right?
1: Of course not. Now, mind you, a lot of people are, uh, and it's difficult to when when somebody is really deep into that, their their a concept of their idea is shallow, but it's a tight loop. It's um, it's complete, right? It. It has all internal to itself. It has all of its own explanations. It has all all roads lead back to lead back to it, and the problem with that is that it doesn't really have any room for any reasonable understanding of people beyond that idea, um, and this this is kind of what applies, I would say, both to some on the reactionary right and some on the far left, where their idea essentially defines that there is only a certain amount of, of allowable ways that somebody can uh, oppose it, and those are only the weakest ways. Um, so even when they try to include people of other ideas in their work, they just can't do it. Because to to allow the possibility that those people are um, are not basically cartoonish, mustache-twirling, cigar-chomping, you know, bat, the penguin from from DC style villains, they their ID their entire idea comes apart, and they're just not willing to make that change. Um, I've run into that quite a few times, and it's very difficult. I I don't know how else to help them fix it other than to just say, you you need to actually have these people who are antagonists seem like they have, um, especially if they're touting an idea, you need to seem like they have they're human. It's okay to have over the top villains as long as they're not the proponents of opposition ideas. Over-the-top villains are there um, potentially, you know, they're not actually the ones pushing another idea. Often it's uh, the idea that is at the core of a story with an over-the-top villain is actually being wrestled inside of the, maybe the ensemble cast of the heroes or uh, inside the hero in their internal struggle between two different um two different sets of ideas and they need to come down to the one that's right to defeat that over-the-top powerful but not but often cartoonish villain so the characters don't all have to be like good proponents of those ideas but when those ideas come up they need to be at their strongest yeah
0: i could talk again about satan in paradise lost but i think i'll refrain We've run for a while, Michael. Uh, We cover everything I have in my notes. Is there anything in particular that you would like to discuss uh, before concluding today? Anything you want our listeners to know about um, either writing good characters, good themes, or any other aspects of goodness that fit into writing that we uh, just haven't touched yet?
1: Uh, I know we've mentioned it, but it's a good thing to end with. Uh, one of my favorite lines in all of literature is uh, Solzhenitsyn's, the, the battle line between good and evil is drawn through every human heart. Uh, that applies to characters as well. Um, that the, to some extent, especially with your heroes, there, there should be some amount of struggle to get, you know, for them to seem like they're good. Good actions shouldn't be easy. Um, they should re- involve some sort of internal struggle, uh, if there's not much external struggle associated with them, internal struggles necessary. But otherwise, it's just you know you could have it either way. Um, good should be difficult. That's what makes it kind of what makes it good is that it's it's the right thing to do, but it's not the easy thing because just like in Star Wars, the dark side, the evil path in Star Wars, in and that's that's fundamental. That's good and evil. Evil is often the shortcut path, or at least it seems like it at the time. So a character who never takes the shortcut, the easy way out, will often be seen as good. Even if what they have actually accomplished is limited to nothing, whereas a character who always takes the easy path who never seems to struggle will often seem as an evil character, even if they accomplish a lot of objective good things in their world
0: That's very excellent um i'll I'll tag on at the end there you know uh you could view life as being a tragedy right this is this is a very um perhaps, hermetic view of it, but I think it if viewed the right way fits in. And our job is to transform ourselves into beings that look upon the tragedy of life as being good, which means to struggle to... Because if it's tragic by nature, right, there's things that hurt about life. It's not just easy sunshines and roses and indulgences. Uh, so our characters, therefore, must struggle to embrace those things that are difficult, and to view even the embracing of those difficult things as, uh, let's say, an act of virtue in and of itself.
1: In the Christian sense, I could rephrase that to say that the, the world itself is a place which is steeped in sin, and it is is fallen, it is dark. So a character who's too comfortable in the world, who achieves things too easily, is probably a not on a virtuous or good path. A character who is on a good path in a world which we take as a preconditioned condition to be flawed and fallen will encounter problems there will be obstacles there will be roadblocks and what makes them good isn't that they start to do something good it's that when they achieve, encounter the roadblocks they do the hard work to overcome them and continue even when it's really hard
0: yeah. all right guys you heard it here uh we're we're in agreement from two different sides of the aisle about what writing good characters is like and good uh let's say themes that promote goodness is like so thank you so much michael i actually really did uh and always enjoy our conversations and i know that our viewers do as well so uh before we depart here today can you direct people again uh where they can find your work
1: uh yeah you can find uh me on minds minds minds.com slash a-e-t-e-r-n-i-s uh, we have daily writing questions. We have, I do have some short fiction up there, 25 ish short stories that you can just read for free. Uh, a few episodes where I recorded an audiobook uh, myself that, uh, I think there's a couple you can listen to for free and then some you can pay for. And, uh, hopefully some more stuff you can buy from me fiction wise soon.
0: I'm excited for that. So yeah, check out Michael's stuff, subscribe to him over on minds. I am a personal subscriber, subscriber of Michael. And I think you should be too. Um, I re- I'm really excited to support your work. Uh, and I've, uh, I've made a red for you before, for those of you who don't know. And I, so I, I can vouch for the excellence. And if you want to know whether, uh, I am, excellent as well. Check out Uh I'm not going to pitch the whole thing again, but yeah, do check out my audiobook for Smoke Broken, or uh, you can buy it over on Amazon. The links are all there uh, on my website. And tell me what you think. And uh, thank you guys so much for listening in. And if you're a writer out there, I hope you start writing good. All right, guys, thank you for listening, and we will see you next time.